The Big Muddy Music Hour is supported by The Bluff Top at Rochport, home of Les Bourgeois Vineyards and multiple lodging options in historic Rochport, Missouri. This getaway location features a tasting room, a wine garden, and a full-service bistro. For more information, visit MissouriWine.com. Hello and welcome to the Big Muddy Music Hour presented by the Bluff Top at Rochport. I'm your host, Colin Lavote, the shameless voice, playing what's relevant in music from the country of the Midwest and beyond. How you doing, folks? Feeling good? Feeling steady? Feeling steadfast? I'm feeling great because this week my guest is Kenny Wayne Shepard, whose music was quite ubiquitous in my youth, uh, particularly the song Blue on Black was just everywhere on rock radio in the 90s and if i had a time machine for my former self and and uh i i knew that i would be talking to this guy i'd I'd probably just be dumbfounded because i I mean like i said is that that song and a lot of his music particularly from his album trouble is was just everywhere in the mid to late 90s and i I had a really great chat with this guy uh he's very nice very uh conversational and intelligent guy that just is honed in on his craft and his father was a radio guy as you'll hear he uh, apparently his his father was a one of the most well-known radio men in louisiana and it, it shows <laughs> this guy is is a great interview and he has a great voice and uh it was a really good conversation we're going to get to that in just a few moments but Real quick, um, if you want to listen to the full radio broadcast versions of the Big Muddy Music Hour, just want to make sure that you know about BigMuddyMusicHour.com. You can check out every single episode that is has been aired as it was aired on the radio waves on our NPR station, KBIA, in Columbia, Missouri. And you can actually hear the, the tracks that I spin. I, I like to share music, what's relevant, what's new, what's uh, enticing me, and hopefully enticing you. So uh, uh, be sure and check out BigMuddyMusicHour.com if you want to hear shows as they were originally presented. But also, I have some pretty big news this week in particular. My band, Decadent Nation, is going to be releasing our first album in a very long time. It's a, our self-titled album on November 18th. So it's going to be hitting all the streaming platforms and, and what have you on November 18th. It's self-titled, as I mentioned. There's 11 tracks on it. And uh, we're going to be doing a album release party in Columbia, Missouri at Burr Oak Brewery. We have the Royal Furs and Downside Up uh, opening up for us. We also have some really cool uh, performers by way of the Como Acro Yoga community are going to be there and doing some installations throughout the venue the night of the event. So it's it's we're really we're really looking forward to that. If you're interested in purchasing tickets or pre-ordering the vinyl. You can go to decadentnation.com to get a hold of all the deets and purchase tickets for, uh, you know, this this album is six years in the making. And uh, if you've been a fan of the show for a long time, 
Uh, you know, we, uh, we're coming up to our hundredth episode. As far as the radio show is concerned, though, I think I've only dropped like twenty po- actual podcasts on the platforms. But I'm getting better. If you've been paying attention, we've been ramping up. Uh, but you know, nearly a hundred episodes of me talking about music. It's time to finally put <laughs> the money where my mouth is, essentially. And I've never been more proud of anything in my life as it pertains to the music I've created. And this is definitely something that's that's worth a listen. So uh, keep an eye keep an eye out, keep an ear out, if you will. Uh, November eighteenth, Decadent Nation's new album will be hitting the platforms, and you can stream as much as you please. We're gonna take a short break. Whenever we come back, we're gonna be talking. With Kenny Wayne Shepherd on the Big Muddy Music Hour podcast. The Big Muddy Music Hour is supported by The Bluff Top at Rochport, home of Le Bourgeois Vineyards and multiple lodging options in historic Rochport, Missouri. This getaway location features a tasting room, a wine garden, and a full service bistro. For more information, visit MissouriWine.com. Also supported by Ozark Mountain Biscuit and Bar, located across from Logboat Brewing Company in Columbia, Missouri. Biscuit and Bar is open six days a week and offers full bar service, an espresso bar with to-go breakfast sandwiches, and serves southern-style comfort food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. For more information, visit OzarkBiscuits.com. The Big Muddy Music Hour is supported by Cooper's Landing Campground and Marina, located on the banks of the Missouri River. Cooper's Landing is home to daily food trucks, a full-service bar, and a full schedule of live music. Cooper's Landing also has a selection of riverside camping spaces for both RVs and tents. For more information, visit cooperslandingmo.com. Also supported by Amber House Bed and Breakfast, located in historic Rochport, Missouri. This full-service inn offers lodging and dinner services open to the public. With locally sourced ingredients, a rotating wine list, and an in-house masseuse. For more information, visit amberhousebb.com. The Big Muddy Music Hour is supported by The Dive Bar, located on Business Loop in Columbia, Missouri. The Dive Bar offers full bar service as well as a menu for lunch, dinner, and brunch on the weekends. Food and craft cocktail catering for events is also available. For more information, visit divebarcomo.com. Also supported by the Boone County Historical Society. Since their founding in 1924, the Boone County Historical Society has been preserving Boone County's history for its future generations. Collecting, preserving, and exhibiting historic artifacts, records, and artwork of the people of Boone County. For more information, visit boonhistory.org. Playing what's relevant in music from the country of the Midwest and beyond, you are listening to the Big Muddy Music Hour, presented by the Bluff Top at Rochport. I'm your host, Colin Lavote, the shameless voice. This week, it's a real treat, folks. I'm talking with a blues phenom, a man whose music uh, really emanated throughout the airwaves during my adolescence, and I'm thrilled to have none other than Kenny Wayne Shepard on the show, man. Thanks thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So you know, I'm I'm really interested in hearing all about 
this new project uh, of yours, but I guess reborn project, if you will. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But I always open up the show with uh, a, a question that I ask every single guest that that is on the show. And that is, what started you off in your musical journey? What was the impetus behind wanting to pick up a guitar in the first place? Well, <clears throat> I mean, my, my musical journey began from the moment I was born. And my dad was in radio and he was DJ program director of, uh, you know, the hottest radio stations in town. So I was, was surrounded by music my whole life <clears throat> around the house, in the car. If I went to work with my dad, obviously at, at his job. Um, so music was just a, a part of my surroundings all the time. And, uh, I was just absorbing all of that, but I always remember being particularly, drawn to the sound of the guitar when I listened to music. And then obviously one thing led to another and I ended up meeting Stevie Ray Vaughan when I was seven years old. And that was the moment that I just got really serious. I watched him play and all I wanted to do was to learn how to play guitar with that fire and that passion that he played with. And so that that was kind of the big spark that that lit the fire of my determination with the instrument. Um, but there's a number of things. I mean, going to every concert that came through town, you know how it is when you work at a radio station, it's like, especially if you're the, the general manager, program director, you get tickets and passes to every show, you get to go meet the band. And so I was constantly going to all these concerts and meeting these bands. It was just all sinking in and really absorbing that. And, and it all contributed to who I became as an artist. That's really cool. I can only imagine, especially where you have ended up in the uh, pantheon of blues guitarists, how much of an indelible impression meeting someone like Stevie Ray Vaughan must have been for you. Did you get to know him much before he passed beyond that moment, or was it just that that one time? No, I met him several times. The last time, <clears throat> is a, there's a famous photograph floating around the internet that I posted years ago uh, on my social media of me and my dad and Stevie standing in the middle of, of us. And that was the last time that wasn't the first time that was the last time that I got to go meet him. And, and after a show and what you can't see that the picture's cropped, but down at the bottom of the photo, cause that, that photo is hanging on my dad's wall at home <clears throat> in the real photo. You can see I'm holding the neck of a guitar and you can see the headstock of a Stratocaster and that's because I had my that was my first Stratocaster and I brought it with me that day and he autographed it for me uh, but that was the last time I got to see him in person um, go back and talk to him you know before his untimely passing yeah do you still have that guitar I do I don't play it uh, it has a Floyd Rose tremolo system on it which at the time I thought wow this looks cool there's all this stuff to it you know I had no idea but it wasn't really kind of for for the kind of music I was going after yeah um, and also I, I played it so much because it was my only strat. So I played it so much that after he signed it for me, I started to wear his signature off of the guitar. Oh. <laughs> and then, you know, being like, you know, 14 years old and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I get like, a, you know, a Sharpie and I started <laughs> to like try and touch up his signature because I didn't want it to go away. So then I just thought, you know, that I'm ruining this thing. <laughs> so I put it away. Wow. That's really funny. So when, were you already playing guitar at the age of seven when you met him? I mean, or, and was it always blues that, that drove you and inspired you or? No, not, not really. Blues was kind of the thing I was really drawn to, but I, I was inspired by a lot of music and, uh, 
and I had been playing, I had little toy guitars. I had these little plastic acoustic guitars with nylon strings <clears throat> that I would wear out until they broke. And then, you know, my grandmother would buy me another one. And I went through a bunch of those. Um, but, you know, they're not real guitars. Uh, but I could play things like Smoke on the Water and Mary Had a Little Lamb and silly things like that. Um, but after I saw him, I was like, I need a real guitar. I needed an electric guitar. And, and then I got one soon after that. But I was drawn to like everything. Like, I remember ZZ Top was like one of my favorite bands when I was a kid. I would go get this this vinyl ver uh, copy of uh, the Fandango record and put it on the record player at my grandfather's house and crank it up and just jump up and down on the bed playing air guitar. Um, loved ZZ Top. Loved, you know, Allman Brothers, Leonard Skinner, Southern Rock, things like that. But also, um, you know, country like, uh, you know, Willie Nelson, George Jones, Hank Williams Jr., Hank Williams Sr., um, because my dad was on a country station for a while. So I grew up around on that James Brown, uh, and funk, you know, and that style of playing rhythmic, rhythmically, uh, really kind of contributed a lot to my ability as a rhythm guitar player, learning that stuff, Jimi Hendrix. So, you know, everything from, but ultimately all of that stuff kind of comes back to blues music, you know, because blues has been the foundation of so many different genres of music. Absolutely. Uh, that's absolutely the case. So in my adolescence, your song Blue on Black was just all over the mainstream rock radio. It was this mm -hmm. this kind of crossover hit that very much in the same way you'd hear um, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, on, on mainstream rock radio. You and he, aside from the fact that you both used 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 uh you know your your full name uh and is have the have had this effect in which you're able to cross uh, over into having this mainstream appeal and i always remembered you you know because i i want to say i was what maybe like 12 whenever that song was just all over the radio and i i remember you as being the the young you know phenom blues guitarist at the time but you had an album prior to the trouble is, which is the album that <clears throat> uh, Blue on Black was on, called Ledbetter Heights. How old were you whenever that dropped? And tell me about those early days whenever you started getting that that traction. Well, so Ledbetter Heights was came out in 1995, and it, you know I recorded that the last three months of my senior year in high school. So I was 17 years old when I recorded that record. Wow! And it's interesting because you know even for the first probably half of my career uh, I didn't sing lead vocals in my band and so for a lot of people they were it's kind of a head scratcher it's like the band's named after you but you're not the lead singer and it's like yeah but there's Jeff Beck and Carlos Santana and Eddie Van Halen and I'd always kind of point that out to people um, but you know the first album if you think about it there's a lot of a lot working against me it's like I'm a I'm 17 years old uh, unknown artist doing blues or blues rock. You know, that album came out in 95. I was 17 years old. I didn't sing in the band for, for almost, I, I sang backgrounds, right? But like, I was not the lead singer. I had to educate a lot of people, remind them that, that there was a lot of people before me that have done this, like Jeff Beck and Eddie Van Halen and Carlos Santana and the kind of list goes on and on. Um, but if you're, if you think about it, there was a lot kind of working against me, if you will. It's like being a kid doing blues, blues rock music, not the singer in the band, um, you know, unknown artists. So I just had an opportunity with that record. Irving Azoff signed me to his record company and he told me to go make 
I said, go make whatever record I wanted to make. He was like, I don't care if it's all instrumental. You don't sing, just you want to make an instrumental record. That's fine. You just go make a Kenny Wayne Shepherd album and give it to me. And I never wanted to be an instrumental artist because I grew up around radio. So the songs that I wrote, I, I wanted them to have choruses and melodies that got stuck in people's heads and that people sung along with. And so that's, I made the record I wanted to make. And uh, I had to find, I, if my voice was not able to get the job done, I didn't have a problem finding somebody who could. Uh, when I would try and sing when I was young, I sounded like a kid, but when I would play guitar, I sounded beyond my years. So the two didn't match up for me. So Anyways, we had a lot of success. We put the record out. Nobody knew what was going to happen. The first single shot up to number five on the rock charts. And then, you know, we sold half a million copies really fast. This album went on to go platinum, sold over a million copies. Um, and that was amazing to have that kind of success. Nobody expected that. That was not an expectation. It was obviously a hope, but you have no idea how the people are going to react until you put it out there and see what happens. So then what trouble is, we had to try and follow up that success. And my hope was to outdo the success of the first album, but it's not always that simple. Well, you did in spades. And before we get to Trouble Is, tell me a little bit about what that was like as a teenager. I mean, you're not even like legally able to to drink alcohol or but purchase alcohol yet, and you're you sell half a million copies in in, in quick order, and you're you're touring and and getting acclaim. I mean, I. It, how, how did you wrap your mind around that being essentially still a kid? Yeah, I, I don't think I really wrapped my mind around a lot of it. I think I was, dude, it was just like, uh, all I knew was I put a record out. I had an opportunity to make an album, which was cool enough in the first place. But then people were playing it on the radio and then I'm playing concerts all around the country and people are buying tickets and packing. them. I mean, it was really for me, it was like, it was all just a vehicle for me to be able to play my guitar. Uh, that's really what it was. I'm like, I just knew that every night I could get on stage and pick up my guitar and people were going to be there to see me do it. And that's all I wanted to do was play guitar. So I'm like, I mean, I think it, it, it kind of ended right there in my mind. It's like, I've hit the lottery. This is it. <laughs> this is what it's all about. It wasn't really trying to measure the magnitude of it all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Uh, again, before we get to trouble, is I, an- another question. You're you're from Louisiana, right? Yeah, Shreveport. Okay, so tell me a little bit about that environment because I've always had, uh, especially being a, a French Canadian myself, uh, a, a love for for the state and for the vibe and the scene. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about growing up in that environment that helped lend itself to the musician you are today? Absolutely. Um, You know, I'm from northern Louisiana, so the people in southern Louisiana kind of disown us up there. It's like (laughs) we're not Louisiana enough for a lot of them. But um, I've always been very proud uh, to be from Louisiana and have sung the praises of my state everywhere I go and tried to raise awareness about my hometown and my home state. Um, but, you know, there's a famous dish down there uh, in South Louisiana called gumbo, and it's kind of got a little bit of everything thrown in, and it just creates this amazing, savory experience, you know, when you eat it. And uh, and I feel like that was my experience growing up there. There's just so much to that state. There's so much culture. I feel like it's the most culturally unique state in the country. I mean, maybe I'm a little biased because I'm from Louisiana, but you go down there and you just don't find anything like that anywhere else in the country. I mean, they speak different languages down there. 
um, they have their own version of French and they got their own version of English, you know, it's like, it's <laughs> incredible. And the food and the cuisine and the scenery and the culture is just like, like no other. Right. Um, so it's got that going for it, but then the music, the musical history of the state from jazz to blues to country, Zydeco, I mean, they have their own, I mean, they, it's just so much about it. Right. And it all comes together right there. And, and then when you look beyond the borders of the state of Louisiana, right. For me, I could get in the car and I could drive five hours northeast to Memphis, Tennessee for music. I could go three hours west to Dallas, Texas. I could go four and a half, five hours southwest to Austin, Texas. Um, you know, the Mississippi Delta is not too far away. New Orleans is like where I was at. You could go in any direction and hit these incredible music towns to go see any kind of music you wanted to beyond what was happening just in your local scene. So I think, you know, being from there had a tremendous impact on me as a person, individual, and as an artist. That's really, really cool. Um, So let's get to Trouble Is, because Trouble Is, your second album, wildly successful again, that had, that was the album that had Blue on Black on it. And you... Tell, take me through that period before we get to this project in which you re-recorded this album. Um, you had didn't really wrap your head around as a as a kid in terms of your success with the first album. What was the met the huge success of Trouble Is like for you? And t- tell you well, know, again, g- give us a little, give us a little bit of the the context for folks that might not know. Well, so. At this point, I think I was 18 years old when I recorded that. I was probably 19 by the time it came out. Um, but again, it's like, I think being so young, you you just don't stop long enough and really look around and fully absorb what's going on. Not to say there's that you don't appreciate it, but you just don't. I, don't, I just don't think at that young you have the ability – most people don't have the ability to realize the entire magnitude of something. Um, it's kind of almost in retrospect that you look at it, you go, Oh my gosh, you know, how incredible was that? I mean, especially when you look at everything, I mean, the age and, and all the things that I listed before, I mean, the success that, that was being had at such a young age, you know, with a career doing a genre, that's not the most popular form of music it's not like i was in a band like nirvana or whatever that was you know all of a sudden the hottest thing on the music scene or any of that so i was never aspiring to be a pop star so to have the kind of success we were having uh was incredible so i mean looking back on it i I just think that most people are lucky to have an opportunity in the music business just an opportunity right and then beyond that you consider yourself to be incredibly fortunate to have a career that maybe lasts five years if you're lucky. But I'm sitting here at 45 years old and my career has been going now coming up on 30 years. And, uh, and we're still selling out concert venues and putting out new records and uh, growing our fan base and the awareness and people are still coming to our shows for the first time. And so I think that's remarkable. And a lot of that, it all goes back to the to the first two albums. I mean, those are the two records that people first discovered me on. Like the the bulk of our fan base, I think, got turned on to me either through the Ledbetter Heights album or the Trouble Is album. I mean, there's more since then, of course. Some people say the first time they heard me was my fourth album. 
the place you're in was the first album I sang lead vocals on. But we got a huge amount of our fan base from the first two records and the success of Trouble Is, Blue on Black, uh, all the singles. I mean, we put out every single that we put out, I think, went into the top five at rock radio. But Blue on Black at the time set the record for the most weeks at number one in the history of the rock charts at the time. So it was I mean, we everywhere. Tremendous. It was everywhere. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, <laughs> I say that as a good thing. It's, it's a magnificent song. Did you just know, I've asked, I've, it's, I rarely ask this question, um, but especially with a song like that, that was so successful and so just all encompassing in terms of the radio airwaves in the nineties. Did you just know whenever you wrote that, that this is something special? I think so. Uh, we knew that it was a great song. When we wrote it, but especially after we recorded the record and we uh, and we mixed it, and we were in the studio listening to the final mix. And by the time the song had re- finished, I mean people were high fiving each other and hugging, and people were dancing around the room. I mean it was a euphoric experience. We knew we had something special. We didn't know what it was going to do or how the people would react, but we knew we had something special. So. Um, but even back to the original demo of the song, I think we knew it was a special song. It was unique for sure. So what made you decide to start taking over the vocal duties? Well, I just felt like it was just the next natural step for me in my evolution as an artist, right? And so we still have Noah, who has joined us at, in the lead vocalist position. He joined the band on the second album on Trouble Is. We had a different guy on the first album. But Noah is still in the band, and it's kind of evolved to the point where we kind of share vocal responsibilities now. It's about 50-50 on new albums. Like, we have a new record out. The last album that we put out in 2019, I think I'm singing, like, if there's 10 songs on the record, I think I'm doing lead on five and he's doing lead on five. And then we support each other. Like I do backgrounds when he's singing or he does backgrounds when I'm singing. He plays rhythm guitar in the show when I'm doing the lead vocals. So it's kind of been this this cool evolution where we both do lead vocalist responsibilities. And really our voices are really different. So it kind of enables us to cover more ground musically. I mean, because there's certain songs that I think there's certainly certain songs that he can sing that I, that I don't feel my voice is suited for. And then we have found in doing records that there's some songs that I feel that my voice is, is better suited for. And so that otherwise, if we didn't have the two voices, then that might be a song that never gets recorded and put on a record. Sure. So it's broadened our scope of what we can do. Yeah. Well, it's great that you have that, that versatility and the, the ability to like in, in the same way that you would use a different instrument for a different, a different part or different uh, angle of how you want to present a song to be able to provide that, that other, that other voice is really cool. So yeah. part, the main reason you're, you're doing press and you're on the show is that you have re-recorded trouble is your second album in its entirety what made you decide to to do that? I mean, I know this is the, it's the twenty fifth anniversary, is that right? But was what was there something beyond that 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 made you want to take this journey of revisiting this iconic album of yours? Well, I mean, we wanted to acknowledge. I mean, a quarter century of anything is worth acknowledging, right? absolutely. Especially when it's an album that still to this day is being played uh, on the radio. It gets played on 
classic rock radio on a regular basis. And then, you know, just a couple of years ago, Five Finger Death Punch did Blue on Black and had a whole nother run, went to number one at rock radio all over again. So, you know, all these things that came from that record, um, I think it was worth celebrating. But also just, uh, you know, from a business perspective to re-record the record, I think it's smart business. And, and it was an opportunity for us to, to revisit that album and to put out a new version. And then this gave me the opportunity to include a song. We did Ballad of a Thin Man, which is a Bob Dylan song. It was originally recorded for the Trouble Is album, but it got cut from the album. It never went on the record. So I thought, you know, we're going to re-record this. I think it would be great to include that since it was intended to be on the record, nobody ever knew anything about it. Um, so we re-recorded that and included that as a bonus track on this version of it. And, uh, and really it also was very helpful for, um, for us to go in the studio and do these songs. And because we've got reacquainted with all the integral, you know, all the details of the parts, because we're going to go do this tour anyways. And so that gave us, you know, we did all the homework in the studio and got reacquainted with some of these songs that we hadn't really played in the past 20 years. Um, but what's come out of it all really is this realization that is something that I felt I already knew, but it just kind of reinforced it is that how relevant this music is still to this day and uh, how kind of timeless, which has always been my goal is to make timeless music. I wanted to write and record songs that would, people could listen to for decades and decades and generations, you know, um, kind of like the songs that you hear come up on classic rock radio all the time. I wanted to, to write that kind of music. And so I think we've done that mission accomplished. I mean, we play these songs. I'm 45. I was 18 when I wrote them and I still enjoy playing them. I still connect with those songs i still feel i'm not embarrassed of the lyrics it's not like i did some goofy song as a kid that i'd be embarrassed to play as an adult uh people are still reacting to them they're singing along they're dancing buying tickets we this tour has been selling out all over the place so people still want to hear this music live so it's just and doing interviews a lot of the people i've done interviews with have commented that like if i put this album out today it would sound just as relevant today I mean, the scope of the business has changed, right? We may not have the longest num number one single in the history of the rock charts today because there's not a lot of rock radio stations that play this stuff anymore. But the music itself, the quality of it, and, and the reaction to it and its relevance would still be on par today if it had never come out 25 years ago. Absolutely. Well, I think you're very fortunate that your album dropped during that when it did, I know. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's a, I, you know, I, I'm sure you would still have great success if, if you're 18 years old today, but I think that there, you're, and obviously you're a widely talented guy and you deserve every bit of success that you've had, had in your life, but man, that that's pretty, pretty serendipitous, man. What a wild ride. That's so cool. No, man, I, I, I have always said we got in on the, on the tail end of the golden age of the music business. And some people may not agree with that because you know, it's true, especially young people. They don't know the difference. They only know what what they're growing up with now. But man, there's I mean, I was reminiscing with some guys, some ra uh, radio promo guys that worked for the record companies that were friends of ours and just all the stuff that, you know, was going on back in the 90s and or the 80s and the 90s and leading up to the, you know, the big, huge transition of where we're at today. But like, there's just so much stuff that that was going on and ways that people promoted records. And, you know, you could do a, a promo package back then. Like, you know, we'd put a single <laughs> yeah. out 
and the record company would come up with this really awesome, like, you know, promo kit to send out to all the programs. Like, nobody would spend money on that stuff today. No. Nope. I mean, just huge dinners that the record companies would put on and invite everybody out to, you know, just to like have everybody and celebrate a record or get it played on the radio. And, you know, you and the program director of this station and that, I mean, just that stuff, this doesn't happen like it used to. And, and then being able to do the music that we did and sell millions of, of records, it's like, that's just not going to happen for a, a blues artist, a blues artist, um, which is the <laughs> label that I always get thrown on me. Um, even though it's like my music from day one, wasn't always traditional blues. I love traditional blues, but we've always done a hybrid of yeah. blues based mm. everything. You know? Yeah, that's true. Okay. And dear listener, the only reason why I laughed is cause I'm, 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 I can see him and we're over zoom and he put quotation marks around blues artist when he emphasized that. And, to to I mean, you, you, but you're right. It is definitely a hybrid and, and, and uh, you know it's but it's it's it it does the trick for for a lot of people. I know we're running out of time. I'm I'm gonna have to run here in a minute. But I have just a couple quick questions because I, uh, you know, I can see you and I I I can see that uh, Fender Twin in the background. Uh, two the two band right. and uh, yeah, that's not, that's an old vibraverb. Yeah. Oh really? Okay. See, I'm a guitar player too, and so I, I'm I'm curious. I'm not that much of a gearhead necessarily. But what what do you play through? Because I mean the for me, when it comes to the type of blues lead tones that that you create, that whole uh, Strat plus you know uh, tube Fender vintage sound mm-hmm. is is a you know a perfect combination, obviously. But you know you have access to whatever you want. So whenever you're you're out on the road, what what are you playing through? Well, I usually have like four amps on stage, three to four amps on stage. <clears throat> it's kind of a blend of you know two or three at the same time. Usually one's up there for a backup. Um, but, you know, 90, 90 to 95% of the sound should be the guitar and the amplifier. Yep. And then the other 5% should be effects pedals. And that's where, I'm at. Pedal that's board, where I'm at, man. Like I, and not to cut you off. And I appreciate the guys <laughs> that have the big pedal boards, you know, but, and because I mean, honestly, like I'm, I'm not a lead player. I'm, you know, songwriter and I, I prefer to surround myself with, much better guitar players than I am. And I, I do, I have a great lead guitarist in my band and he, he makes some great sounds with, with his big, you know, complex board. And I appreciate that. But my, my approach has always been, you know, keep, keep it simple. If, you know, if you have the right tools, then, you know, you can, you can get, you can, uh, get across what, what you need to get across at the end of the day. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's the thing. So, I mean, if you look at my pedal board, it, it might look like there's a lot going on. But I think ultimately I've got like six or seven actual effects pedals and then I have this programmer. So like basically it enables me to program which pedals I want to come on, like a series of them all at once. So yeah. I'm not tap dancing and mm-hmm. turning three on or or off. Um, but not, I mean, I'm telling you like it's 90% guitar amplifier. And then like I, some pedals on my board are there for one song, like, you know, blue on black has to have that Octavia, but I don't really use the Octavia in any other songs in the set, but it has to be on the pedal board for that one song. Or like I have a delay pedal that I'll use like on two songs, but I don't use it on anything else, but it's important for those two songs. But really, man, it's like, <clears throat> you really want your instrument, your hands, your soul, the wood, the strings and the amplifiers moving that air and the tubes burning nice and hot. You know, that that needs to be the core of the sound for sure. 
Absolutely. And one last quick question again, it's about your surroundings. You're in kind of like a, uh, a garage, it looks like I see like you know there. I see a nice car in the background. I see some photos of cars. Is, is that is car stuff like kind of your your um, thing that other thing that you use to blow off steam aside from playing music? Yeah, man. <clears throat> I always said early on in my career when they were interviewing me and they're like, "Well, what are you going to do if this music thing doesn't work out?" And I always said that I was going to race cars, you know. And so thankfully, the music thing worked out. <laughs> and it enabled me to pursue my passion with cars. But it's always been a toss up for me uh, as a kid and as an, a, an adult as to, you know, which one I'm more passionate about. Is it the cars or is it the guitars? But the cars wouldn't be here without the guitars. So I think <laughs> the guitars went out. Well, the guitars, as guitars should, went out. Kenny Wayne Shepherd, it's been a, a real joy talking to you, man. Um, I, I've, I've uh, had a great time chatting. Congratulations on your success and the 25th, 25th anniversary of this epic album. And yeah, thanks for being on the Big Money Music Hour, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.